Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. My dad was so funny. He's like, you need to be street smart, and you need to be book smart, but street smart is more important. Those guys didn't mess around. They, I mean, they were like, you don't have any business being out here. You need to have an apron on and be in the kitchen. Do I have to wear Jimmy Spencer's Kmart polo shirt? Because it doesn't fit me very well. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. So, Steve, there hasn't been a lot going on in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Are you we, sure? 
<laughs> we did have an absolutely amazing reaction to the two roundtable episodes with Buddy Parrott and Rambo and Jerry Cannon and Chris Hussey. And Steve, I'm going to go ahead and put this card out there on the table. I'm already in the process of lining up another roundtable discussion. Very good idea. That first roundtable was terrific. Of course, I expected as much with the characters you had on there. Don't <laughs> <laughs> be hard to match it. Don't be I don't hard know to match if the it. podcast world is ready for another roundtable discussion anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> but then also, Jeannie and I flew out to Las Vegas and we did a little sightseeing between there and Tucson, Arizona. And I did a, I moderated a panel at an event called Space Fest with some of my former flight controller friends that I have made over the years writing the book and then producing the mission control documentary. And Steve, Jeannie and I, we went through Sedona and you and I have talked a little bit before we started recording about Sedona. That's some of the most beautiful scenery I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Call the red rocks type of thing. And, uh, that's exactly what it is. It's kind of unbelievable, but the way the hills are formed and the way the rocks line up and everything like that, it's just very beautiful country. Sedona now, though, is a little bit more commercial than it used to be. <laughs> well, I thought it was a whole lot commercial, <laughs> the town, but the scenery, I mean, the scenery is something unlike anything I had ever seen before. But then, Steve, we also went to the Grand Canyon. And beforehand, I just thought of the Grand Canyon. Okay, it's a great big ditch. Okay, big <laughs> ditch. Whatever. And it was indeed the most incredible sight I think I've ever seen. I mean, it was just amazing. I understand completely, Rick. It really is beautiful country out there. It's hard to describe that to people. And it's hard to imagine that that type of countryside, that type of canyon was formed by one river that ran through it for millions of years and then steve we also drove route 66 and man that was so cool i mean just the just being out there on that road by ourselves i mean we drove for probably a hundred miles and might have seen three or four other cars the entire way incredible and that used to be the route to the west 66 was very much populated with all kinds of Restaurants, motels, general stores, whatever you want to call it. It was considered to be a real street and an adventure to drive on Route 66. Well, then we got back to Vegas. <laughs> and Jeannie won $8 on the penny slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> We're rich. I don't know how they keep the doors open on the place. <laughs> But that was just such an incredible week. And I will say this, I believe that I'm going to need a vacation to rest up for my vacation. <laughs> I understand how you feel. <laughs> you also stopped by Tombstone, did you not? We did. And, you know, I, I'll say this, as big a history buff as I am, I was a little underwhelmed. I, I'll have to say that. Nothing against the town. They do the best they can with what they've got. But. It was just very, very, very touristy. Yeah, it's gotten to be that way. It was not uh, as touristy when I got out there years ago. You know, the whole town is like in a square, shaped into a square. 
and went around that entire square and counted seven different saloons <laughs> in that area. Okay, I better, I better not make any comments about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't go in all seven of them, okay? <laughs> but the Birdcage Theater was uh, kind of interesting. There was a poker game in the basement of that building, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There was a poker game going on down there. Well, I was going to ask, what was it like to cover the gunfight at the OK Corral? Oh, oh here we go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, then finally, Steve. Oh, yeah. Dirty Mo Media introduced and dropped the first two episodes of the podcast that I'm going to be doing with them. Now sit down for this one, Steve. Glorious white knuckle, God fearing, spun out and half turned over racing stories. Yeah, say that 10 times. Well, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I had to practice it. <laughs> but, Steve, I'm going to tell you, man, that has been such an humbling process just to know that somebody like Dirty Mo Media and Mike Davis notice what we've been doing here on the Same Vault podcast. And if you have listened to our show, the same vault podcast for any time at all, you're probably going to recognize at least some of the interviews that will be featured on the dirty Mo show, but not in the way that they're presented by dirty Mo media on the glorious white knuckle God fearing spun out and half turned over racing stories podcast. You and I just don't have the means or the expertise to put the kind of production into the episodes like dirty Mo can. So what I do is I record a brand new narration and then I turned it over to them and I'm telling you, they almost kind of sort of make me sound cool. Maybe <laughs> emphasis on the maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving right along, Steve, in our first segment, <laughs> Shauna Robinson was the very first woman to win a NASCAR touring series race when she won a Charlotte Daytona dash series event at Asheville. And she actually won several NASCAR Daytona dash series events over the course of her career. She was also the first woman to win a pole in the Bush series. Sandy Eastep, Deb Williams, and Kelly Crandall have all been on the same vault podcast before, but Shauna is the very first woman we featured as an interview guest here on the show. And what a story she has. We're going to do three episodes with Shauna, the first two on her career. And then the third and final show will focus on her battle with breast cancer and a heroic battle. It was too, Rick. And Steve, I knew of course, that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer, but I didn't know exactly the kind of battle that she had experienced. And she laid all her cards on the table and it described it in detail. And I know that your life has been touched by cancer. I know that my life has been touched by cancer, but for anybody to go through that and live to tell about it, it's a pretty extraordinary story. Yes, it is, Rick. And I think our listeners will discover that in order to overcome great odds, you have to have courage and determination. And I think that's what Sean had in this case. Well, I think her being a racer helped because yeah. she was determined to beat this thing. She was right. determined to figure out a way to take that checkered flag and, and beat it. So 
listeners, that's going to be coming up in a couple of weeks and you will not want to miss that. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the October 10th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That issue covered the fall Charlotte race weekend that year. And the first three races of Shauna's Bush Series career were all on tracks four tenths of a mile in length or less. She made her very first speedway start there at Charlotte that weekend and finished 30th after being involved in an accident. Jeff Bodine and Junior Johnson stretched their fuel mileage to. They stretched their fuel mileage to the very last vapor (laughs) and won the Winston Cup event after Mark Martin had dominated that day. Morgan Shepard and Dave Marcus were involved in a pretty heated confrontation after they were involved in an accident together. And Steve, this issue also featured coverage of an announcement that was made in Level Cross, North Carolina that stirred up a lot of emotions for a lot of people. Richard Petty stood up in front of a group of reporters that included you and me and Deb. And I'll never forget the fact that the two of you were there that day. And I'll tell you why later. Okay. But I got to tell you, Rick, I don't remember you being there. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not surprised though. I'm not. (laughs) Well, that was a backhanded compliment. If ever there was one. (laughs) Jeez, man. Steve, this week, we also have new Patreon support from Justin Petrie and increased support from Jason Swafford. So Justin and Jason, thank y'all. I say it every week, every time we have somebody help us out. I truly do appreciate it because you have allowed us to get to this point to where people are listening, to where people are paying attention to what we're doing. And I thank you so much. You help us do what we love to do. And that's talk about NASCAR history. So if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. If you can support us on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Well, Shauna, first things first, how did you get started in racing? Didn't your mom and dad both race at one point? Well, uh, my dad always raced from before I was ever even born, and my brother raced. Um, And my mom did race um, in, uh, I think it was a powder puff thing at the time or something like that. But I think she, uh, anyway, my dad did not like it whatsoever, which is really funny because I grew up my sisters and all of us grew up with, I mean, here's my dad, like, uh, we're going to pick a truck up. I need somebody to pick it, go with me to pick. We're 13, 14 years old. (laughs) So ride with me up to Altoona and we're going to go grab this truck. I need you to follow me back. He didn't ever think anything of that because we knew how to drive from the time we were little kids and we had many bikes and we, we weren't wealthy by any means. It's not like we had a garage full of toys, but he was into uh, truck wholesale was his business, so he would buy and sell fleets of trucks, and then um, he did the racing thing in uh, well, USAC back in the days in Iowa State Fairgrounds, ran all over Pocono, Milwaukee, and when we were little girls, we would go and, and play in the infield, and then later 
he uh, took over promoting the Iowa State Fairgrounds. Okay. And um, he was one of the original, I think he was the original who first inverted a field. So wow. he was always trying, we kind of right. call it the circus. Yeah. We think there's circus blood in our history. We need to do a, a whateverme.com. The, well, the you history. were racing. Of course yeah, it was a circus. It was definitely a circus. <laughs> so then he started promoting, and I was at the point of uh, graduating high school. I was 18. Um, so he wanted me to learn marketing and travel with him. He was starting to do truck races because – Again, something different that nobody was doing. And so I went to start kind of with the marketing thing. And we were unloading at Toledo Speedway. He would he would bring like 10 or 12 race trucks, and he would get local drivers to, to run. And then we had other drivers, and um, I was helping unload them off the trailer, and I just kind of took off on the track. And he was watching me. It's easier to ask I mean, forgiveness this, than it oh, is I know. permission. Exactly. And he was watching me and knowing how he knew me is he's like, oh. And he was noticing that, like, my throttle and just that, that I wasn't scared. And he's like, oh, if you do that with other trucks, you won't be – it'll scare you. And no, he knew that was like a challenge. Yeah. So I actually raced that night. This was back in the time. That this night. was 83. I just graduated high school, May 28th. And I think this was the next weekend. And so him being the, the marketing promoter mind, he, um, I would go, we would have, we were racing similar to the sprint cars, World of Outlaws at the time. We were running Wednesday nights, sometimes Friday nights, Saturday nights. So we were running close to 60 events in a season. And he would, I would go in to say if we had Chicago. So I'd have to go and, um, well, at this time, this is going to show my age, but the yellow pages, you'd go through, you know, you'd pick the three television stations yeah. and, the, and two newspapers or one major newspaper. And I would go, and I had a budget of what we could spend for 30-second spots, and I would go and set up all our commercial promotion okay. the week before. Yeah. Yeah. And then I would go to the sports department, which they didn't come in till like 3.30 or 4. So I would go yeah. back and I would have a little folder. And I'm like, I'm a driver. And I thought maybe you might want to do a story. And I mean, 85% of the time they did. There was occasional, well, we only do baseball and football. We don't really cover <laughs> racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, overall, it was like a little story for that week of, of entertainment and so I learned how to market myself, and then the racing was really the key part of it. And that was for a year of not really knowing. I, I was basically going to travel for the year and then decide what I was going to do college-wise. And my dad was so funny. He's like, you need to be street smart, and you need to be book smart. But street smart is more important. You need to... You need to know how to negotiate. You need to know how to work with people. And going to school and partying for three years isn't necessarily what you're going to learn. Your dad was a smart yeah. man. <laughs> a lot of people would not agree with that. But he did teach us all yeah. well. I mean, my sisters were very active, too. When he promoted at the Iowa State Fairgrounds, my sister Stephanie, she was always into writing. And, and she was the only one of us that went to college. And she... Um, would make all the little programs for the racetrack, you know. It was, uh, and then my brother was a daredevil. He he jumped semis. He raced. He raced stock cars. Then he then he got into the truck racing thing because my dad kind of created that. And then um, 
he they they came up with an event of jumping a Peterbilt from ramp to ground uh, over cars. So he had a little finale at the end of the event. So that was how it all started. But then after a year, now just for the record, yeah. <laughs> you're not talking about pickup trucks. Oh, you're no. talking about semis. I'm talking that about you're a racing. Peterbilt, uh, no trailer. You know. <laughs> Single axle on it, but no. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. eventually, we actually went to a tandem. We we lost the eight or the four back wheels and made them more modified. Yeah. And they had fiberglass frames. The motors were moved back, so they were more set up lower and and to race. So and that's what you and your brother. That's what you were racing, and your brother was jumping. Yes, and he was racing also. <laughs> we, we raced against each other. <laughs> I mean, in the very beginning, I didn't even have a uniform like. Uh, you know, it took a few races, and then I got my first race suit. And, you know, obviously I had helmets and all that, but then it kind of turned into um, taking this as a – that was in 83. So that first year was really just kind of traveling with my dad, like I said, the circus. And then um, in 84, I always kind of set myself like a graph in my – I'm very – I'm artistic. So for me, I'm definitely not a list maker or a numbers person, terrible at, at numbers. But I would always kind of put my life in a, in a chart that I could visualize, and I wanted to always see a growth one way or another. So we, um, we went into what they called the Gator – Great American Truck Racing, which was a series that was created basically based on Smokey and the Bandit and yeah. Burt Reynolds yeah. and yeah. Jerry Reed and all that that time frame. And it was more of a professional series that ran on speedways and short tracks. And that's one thing that with, with my dad, we, we would go to a racetrack and basically do hot laps, and then we would qualify and race. We didn't have like three days there to do. It was like, and it was a dirt, half mile dirt one weekend. It might be a, a asphalt the next. You just never knew. You had to unload, practice, qualify, race. So that's how I learned really kind of just the seat of your pants feel of, of getting it done because you didn't have a lot of time and you had to, and I think the dirt history along with the asphalt. And then when I got into the Gator series, it it went to speedways. So uh, I think Atlanta was my first speedway. And I didn't have any earplugs because, you know, this is when radios just started. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Dick Trickle loaned me his earplugs, which I kind of think now is a little bit like, ew, I put in <laughs> Dick Trickle's old earplugs. <laughs> but, hey, it worked. And that was the, the first time because um, they were running. I think there was a, a stock car race yeah. along with the trucks. At Atlanta, and then I ran Pocono, uh, Milwaukee. So I learned. Um, then I got a sponsor in '86. So '84, I started the Gator Series, and then actually '85, I got Dryden Oil, which is kind of cool. Now they're they're back into yeah. it. I'm seeing them yeah. sponsoring a lot of cars and races. But I uh, moved from Iowa to Pennsylvania. Uh, Basically, I had no car, no place to live, but the company hired me to be a sales rep and and as, as a driver. Okay. And so I had to go to oil school and learn about <laughs> consistencies of oil. They oil they focused school. on yeah, oil school. <laughs> they focused on heavy duty lubricants, and so I would have to travel with the salespeople and learn the business, and then I would do trade shows, and then we had run the Gator series. So it was it was quite a thing. So I did that until um, eighty. 
eight, I moved to Boone, North Carolina, and that's when I, and Pat Patterson was responsible for that. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Pat Patterson contacted um, Art James, who was my boss at Dryden Oil, and basically that graph again, I'd kind of done ba- what I could do in the truck racing world. It wasn't that well known. I mean, I went to France and raced. Yeah. Uh, I raced in Mexico. Uh, so, I, I mean, I experienced so much and so much um, different, like, ability to transform from a heavy truck to a stock car, yeah. which, you know, usually starts the opposite way. You start at, at go-karts or uh, legend cars, and you go into the heavier weight. I went from heavy to light, and so uh, Pat Patterson got me connected with David Watson out of Boone, North Carolina, who owned, uh, at the time, was Daytona Dash Series. Michael Waltrip had come from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Davey Allison had ran in that. It was kind of like the ARCA of today. Right. And um, so David was uh, my first stock car owner. And when we went to Daytona to test, because the first race was Daytona, they were like, you don't feel intimidated if you're not comfortable. And I'm like, I'm like, is this all this does? Like, <laughs> does it go any faster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, it, it was like, you have to learn how to draft. You got to learn a lot of stuff. So um, we, uh, I ran with David Watson, who provided me with equipment that was competitive. And so we, we won in like our third or fourth race. Uh, first race I won at Asheville, which made me the first woman ever to win on a NASCAR touring series. Right. And um, we went on to win at Myrtle Beach. You know, we were, we were competitive every time we would unload. And with that, drivers, if they know you're in good equipment and they know you can handle yourself, then they're, they're, they're going to go with you. You know, like if you're going to get in the draft, they're, they're not going to hesitate to go. So I, I gained some respect there. I definitely had people that didn't like me, always had that. But let me tell you, learning that in the truck, series in the big trucks those guys didn't mess around they i mean they were like you don't have any business being out here you need to have an apron on and be in the kitchen and, and, and there was there was nice did, ones but there was definitely not nice ones. did you actually hear stuff like that oh yeah oh uh one driver who is funny i think i'm uh facebook friends with his son now uh, dick murtaugh he was like one of the rough and rugged and and he he was very competitive and he uh, well, we kind of we kind of stirred the pot first. My owner put. <laughs> I have to give him some okay. credit. All right, okay. So all right, okay. my owner had put uh, "Bye Bye Boys" on the fuel tank, which you see the big round fuel tank that's on the back of the semi. Yeah. So you see it, and he put "Bye Bye Boys." Well, then Murtaugh put "Bye Bye Bitch" on his. Yeah. Did he really? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, but it was always that kind of thing, and and but that made me. It made me tough, you know? It made me... I never cared about that I was a girl because I didn't ever look at it that way. I mean, my sisters and I rode motorcycles. We played sports. We grew up in Iowa, and we... And, and then my mom was a antique person and, <laughs> and did all the stuff with going to yeah, antique yeah, shows yeah. and antique shops, and she put wallpaper up and, you know, rearranged the furniture all the time. So I really got a part of both of them in my life, by far. What was your parents' reaction to your racing career? Was your dad for it? Oh, my dad was 100% for it. 
and very, he was my mentor, basically. He, there were opportunities I had with um, J.D. Stacy at the time, had some stock cars, and Robin McCall, Robin Dallenbach, she was running for him, and they had wanted to bring me in as a two-car team. And my dad was like, nope, unless she's going to be the number one car, because I would be the number two car. Yeah. He's like, she's not going that way. So when we went to Pat Patterson and David Watson, he was all for that and supportive. And he always really just drilled in my head, you've got to be the first, you've got to be the first. And I hated that because it's like, don't do that to me. I just want to, I want to be, I know. I and then when I did win at Asheville, I said, you were right, Dad. <laughs> it is pretty cool being the first. So, um, but he, he was very much involved with, kind of guiding me in that way. And then it was kind of hard because when I went into the Dash series, I kind of left his series. So he was still promoting and running his stuff. And I really wasn't available to go do that. And I didn't really want to anymore. Yeah. I wanted to keep going that yeah. direction. And that's where impatience came in. What was your mom's reaction? Well, okay. When I ran Toledo, um, my dad had a video because I'd have to take all these beta tapes to the TV stations to do our little spots. And then, you know, he made the commercials and put me in the, the commercials and my brother, the truck jump and the whole thing, and I would go to the TV things. Well, so he took one of those um, tapes at home, and he said to my mom, here, I want you to watch this and pay attention to that truck right there. What do you think? And she's like, well, they're doing pretty good. And then at the end, I get out, and I'd won the heat race, and it was me. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and she said, all right, I know I'm not going to have any control over this, but do not ever put her in a sprint car. Because a good friend of my dad's was Don Lamberti, who yeah. Casey's General Stores was one of the reasons how I got into to the Dash cars, because they sponsored me. And Casey's was a very big part of it. But I had many opportunities to run sprint cars, but that was the one thing my mom, because she grew up back with the, A.J. Foyts and Ramos Stott and the, the no-wing sprint cars, and she saw a lot of stuff happen. Yeah. And she didn't – now, not that I think, like, I have so much credit for, like, Aaron Crocker, who, run, you know, ran at Knoxville, and, and I think it's, it's – I love – World of Outlaws is always my favorite type of racing. But, yeah, that was the only thing my mom said. And, see, before that, before all this racing – I was more into horses. I wanted to be a barrel racer. I, uh, and my mom was so much. I was taking riding lessons and uh, jumping lessons, and she's like, oh, I don't want you to do that. You might get hurt. And then I end up being a race car driver. So I believe I would have yeah. stuck with horse. I know. <laughs> yeah, I've had a few broken bones from horses. I will tell you that, though. I've been run under a tree, broke my nose, broke <laughs> my shoulder, racing, same thing. So I kind of went from horses to different type of horsepower so so when you move from driving the big trucks mm -hmm. to the dash series which you went from a basically a semi to a, a sub yeah, i went from eight thousand six to eight thousand pounds to 2400 so how big of an adjustment was that it in, didn't in actually driving the car it, it didn't feel like that big of an adjustment really? to me because we didn't have power steering in those trucks not till later, like yeah. as they advanced. Um, so it, it, it didn't, it felt natural. It felt natural. Really? Yeah. In Daytona, my first race, we finished third, but we had lost first and second gear. So on the last restart, that's oh, yeah. what happened. Yeah. And then when we went back the next time, uh, we got the pole 
and they um, said I had a legal carburetor, so they took, NASCAR took my carburetor, and uh, of course they gave us other, another carburetor. And this is when you had second round qualifying. So on second round qualifying, I went faster with their carburetor than I did first round, but I had to start 21st. Yeah. And I think that was when, uh, actually that was the first race, that's when we finished third. So, you know, it's been fun. You mentioned impatience a second ago. How did that begin to manifest itself? Um, I think it goes back to the scale in my head and feeling like I needed to go to the next step. And uh, David Watson, my owner, he was very loyal, and he really wanted to be the one that kind of took me there. Um, But I had some offers to run the Bush Series, sponsors. Um, I think that was a little bit, it was Sparky's Hot Dogs. Um, Oh, I have a funny story about that. I, I worked other jobs because I was racing well, I was racing with David in the Dash Series full-time, but there wasn't a huge schedule. I don't remember how many races we ran, but I don't think it was 24 or anything. I think it was less than that. But um, So I worked um, – I didn't work when it, in Boone, but I moved from Boone to Spartanburg, and that's when I was uh, engaged to Eddie Pearson. And so I worked for a staffing agency, and uh, then I got Sparky's as a sponsor – and we got a deal with a limited series in the Bush series. And um, so one day I put, I started as like a secretary and then I moved into branch manager. And the home base was out of Columbia. And one day I had to go do an autograph session at Sparky's because I had a race coming up. So I put a note on the door of the office. I'll return in one hour in the Darn owners came that day, and so I kind of got fired. But <laughs> it was kind of like I was trying to do both, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then, but racing was the priority. So as right. I got more ability to run the race cars, then the other jobs didn't matter. But yeah, it was it was kind of funny story. So that's where the impatience came in. Is I I went from running full time dash with a competitive owner, competitive car, and and to running limited series in the Bush series. And so I was still advancing, but that's where I started to kind of see my, my graph kind of go down a little bit. And that's the one thing that I would say to any uh, up-and-coming drivers, male or female, uh, if you have the opportunity to run full-time, absolutely do it. I don't always have your seat, your butt in the seat as often as you can instead of trying to do it. Because think about it. If you're going to run 10 races, but everybody else is running 28, you are constantly trying to catch up from whatever they learned the weekend before. And then you come back in and you're expected to do the same things. And then with being the only girl or one of the only women out there, you know, the cameras are all on you. And you're expected to perform at this level, but at the same time, you're not up to speed to where you were. So there's a little driver, uh, Gracie Trotter, which I know people are starting to hear about her now. I know everybody knows Haley Diggin, and she's awesome. But Gracie Trotter is running all over the place. And she won that ARCA race, and then she's running short tracks all over. And I think that when she does transfer to a full-time either truck or ARCA or whatever that's full-time, you're really going to see results from her. So not only... 
were you wanting to prove yourself as a race car driver? Did you feel the pressure to prove yourself as a female race car driver? Um, you know, that's a good question. No, I don't think so because I was, it was more, I think more on the marketing side of things. I tried really hard to kind of change the format. Like, do I have to wear Jimmy Spencer's Kmart polo shirt? Because it doesn't fit me very well. (laughs) And why can't I get my own shirts and have the logo put on that fit me and are more tapered and then I'm feminine. I'm, I am a woman. So market me that way. Do I have to stand in front of the car and hold my helmet like that? Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. had just done a, the Dakar and it had like the leather jacket on and it was like the cologne and it was black and white and it was just cool. I'm like, why are you not marketing me in, in this way instead of staying with that? Well, and this is where there weren't a lot of women uh, involved in journalism, for one, it, it involved in TV. Uh, and if you did see them, their uniform was khaki pants and a golf shirt. And now look at it. Now look at the world. I mean, how it is now and all the female, great female uh, commentators and, and media. And But then it, was, it wasn't really like that. I mean, I had to wear khaki pants and the, the logo shirt, and it took a while before I got to make my own. Polaroid let me do that. So later on, I did get to do my own clothes. So you had the reaction in trucks with the guys comment on his oil tanker, gas yeah. tanker, whatever it was. As you graduated up the ladder, did comments like that tend to lessen, get worse, stay the same? There was always a little bit here and there. There were certain drivers that were never going to like you just because you were a girl. They just, they just didn't, yeah. didn't like it. Uh, I think earning respect in the dash cars by, by being competitive helped but there were definitely those drivers that, that didn't, you know, they weren't going to let me get by no matter what they had to do. If it was taking me out, they'd take me out. And that happened, you know, that, yeah. that was part of it. And, but I never, I always kind of looked at it like I'm out here because I want to be competitive. Patty Moise was a contemporary of yours. What kind of relationship did you have with her? Did you see her as a competitor? Or as a comrade in arms, or how did you see her? Uh, I think we were always marketed as the two girls that were running in the Bush yeah. Series. She was obviously above, you know, she was there before me, so I respected her in every way. Um, but I always was like, why do they, every, people would just get mixed up. Like, they would think, I'm Patty. How's Elton doing? I'm like, I'm not Patty. <laughs> like, there was never that separation of, yeah, yeah, yeah. because we were the, girls there was people would get us confused all the time and we were two totally different people but i mean i think she did uh wonders for helping me come into the sport but i never looked at it like we're competing against one we're competing against everybody else out there uh, but you did, yeah i'm not gonna lie you always wanted to finish ahead i mean because you always kind of look at who did better or yeah, who's yeah, the first yeah. one that's gonna get be out so yeah but now, um, I mean, we've always been friendly, uh, never, ever had a, a bad moment with her, and I respect her very much. When you would hear comments like that, I don't know what kind of reaction you might have had. I don't know if you got upset. I don't know if you got depressed. I don't know if you got angry. But was there somebody that you could turn to for moral support? 
was it your team owner? Was it your crew chief? Was it team member? Was it somebody else that you knew? Or were you basically just facing that by yourself? A lot of facing by myself. My dad was always very much the one I would go to, like, emotionally if I was, um, and he'd straighten me right out. I mean, he was, don't let him see you. Don't let him see you cry. Don't let him see you, you know. I I had, uh, I didn't have really a coach. I had good crew chiefs. Uh, David Watson, the owner, was great. Uh, Michael Cranifus later on in yeah. ARCA, and uh, a couple cup races. He was a he was somewhat he was a mentor. His wife was very so. Yeah, if there were emotional things going on, or um, that that was helpful as I as I went into the cup with with um, I think with Cranifus was the first time we ran Michigan, and I had in the ARCA race at. Michigan, I had broken my shoulder and ribs. Um, I think we had the pole that race, and I actually blown a motor in practice. We borrowed Ryan Newman's Pinsky's because they were Pinsky Cranifus was yeah, the day. Yeah. So we borrowed Ryan's backup motor, and I qualified on the pole. And then I think we—I don't know how far in we were, but I think we were running second in a blue right front tire and hit the wall. Blew me in a helicopter. To the they did they did the whole emergency because I thought I had a punctured lung and but ended up having broken shoulder collarbone ribs and anyway got me back home everything was fine I wanted to get in the car the next week at Pocono uh, Michael didn't want me to but he did end up letting me start because I met this man called who was Al Shuford I don't know where he is today. I think he did go into motorsports, but he was a trainer for the Panthers. This is right when the Carolina Panthers just got oh, into Charlotte. Yeah. And so Michael had reached out because uh, Dell Jr. or Bobby Labonte or somebody had broken, and, and he helped him through the rehab. So, I mean, literally, the day I got home from that wreck, which was probably Monday. Now, was that an ARCA deal? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, was probably Monday because the crash happened on a – well, whatever the day of the ARCA race was, yeah. I don't remember. But um, they they were like, "We've got you set up. You need to get you need to get yourself to the campers, the Panthers training facility." And so I was like, "I can't go." <laughs> so I had a, a girl helping me with my kids, and she drove me down to the Panthers thing, and I met Al Shuford, and he he said. I will have you holding a steering wheel and turning it left by the time you leave here today. And they put me in the swim, the, the wave pool yeah. and did all these taped up certain things. And I'm telling you what, by the time I left there, I could turn a wheel. And I did start at, at Pocono the next weekend. And Michael made me get out halfway through because he knew I was still injured. I didn't want to get out, but he made me get out. But then we were back on track after that. So oh, let me finish that story. So then Al, Al Shuford ended yeah. up, I think, leaving the Panthers and going into uh, physical therapy motorsports. I, I believe he went with um, Hendrick or someone. And he, but he worked with me from, from the time he fixed me that time. He, he went to a couple races, and then I was running a cup race. And he was like, listen, mentally, this is where you need to be. When you're going in, you cannot be intimidated. When you're... So take it from here. When you back out of that garage area, you have blinders on. You do not care 
who's looking, who's thinking, who's pointing, who's judging. You do not care. You have one focus, and that is to get drive through there, and you drive through there with confidence. Yeah. And you go out there, and you do all you can do. That was, like, huge for me because I never had that. I never had that, that person who'd say, if you're angry, don't throw your helmet, you know, at the other car. Just go into your trailer and punch the wall, but don't let anybody else see you do it because you're going to be judged. You're going to be looked as, you know, if, if, a, if, a, if Tony Stewart would have gotten mad and hit somebody or threw his helmet or whatever, it's like he's tough, and which he is tough. I'm going to say that, by the way. He's amazing. But if, if I would do that, <clears throat> I was judged as, as being uh, emotional. Mentally, just her emotions are going to get in the way. Steve, there was a thought that really kind of struck me as I was editing this interview with Shauna, especially the early part. When she was just getting started in the sport, her story sounds just like countless other interviews that we've done over the years, both for this podcast and years ago for seeing her dad was heavily involved in racing, both as a driver and a promoter, Shauna and her sisters tagged along. She learned how to drive long before she ever actually got her license. And when she got old enough, she started racing herself. And that's just the way it works in motorsports. It's generational and it's passed from parent to child. And I mean, we could talk about a million different fathers who've had sons and grandsons who've went on to race and it's passed down. It's almost like a family heirloom. The thing that struck me was that if this story was coming from a man, it would be just like so many others that we've heard. But, you know, when it comes to women in racing, no one has had more of an influence on my own journey in the sport than Sandy Eastep, the most passionate race fan that I will ever know, ever know. And then there's Kathleen McDonald who has supported and encouraged us along this journey with the podcast and my walking challenge last year. And I honestly think that Kathleen might go to more races a year than you and I ever thought about attending. And here's the deal. It is my dream in life to one day sit down and watch a race with Sandy and Kathleen. Well, you better have an extra seat because I'm joining it. <laughs> I don't want to miss that. <laughs> well, I can tell you this. I know what it's like to watch a race with Sandy, although it's been a long time since I've had a chance to do that. Let's just say that the eating is good. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have us some E-Step chili. Oh, oh. nothing like E-Step chili. Light you up, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> like I but, said, you got to take me a place. <laughs> but then... With the photos that Kathleen posts on social media, now let's just say it would be buffet time. Oh, <laughs> Kathleen loves her some racetrack food, man. <laughs> Those two ladies are the most passionate NASCAR fans around. And I think that's just awesome. I mean, if it I, wasn't for Sandy Eastep, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. I agree. There's nothing like a passionate NASCAR fan. To make every bit of this worthwhile. I will say this. The only issue that I maybe see with Kathleen 
is that she's a Kevin Harvick fan. <laughs> Why, Rick? Why do you say that? <laughs> okay, moving right along. Moving right along. We don't want to get bogged down or anything. <laughs> then scene had its own story to tell over the years. There was a pretty extensive feature on Janet Guthrie in the very first issue of Grand National Scene ever. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Pat Howell was brought on as a senior editor the following year in 1978. She was all about carving out a place for women in the sport. If there was a photo or something that she didn't like in the paper of a pretty young lady, she wasn't afraid to set the record straight, at least from her viewpoint. Heard that more than once from her. But again, <laughs> Pat loved her racing, and she liked to you know, develop stories and columns that had some meaning to female fans. And then, of course, there was Deb Williams, who I will forever be grateful to for her guidance early in my career. And then when I think of women in general who thrive in a world dominated by men at the top of that list is my wife, Jeannie. And I'll have to say this, I'm proud of what she's been able to accomplish. Jeannie was the first district court judge ever from Yadkin County, where we live and where she grew up. She was the first female district court judge in the 23rd judicial district of North Carolina, which is comprised of Yadkin County, where we live. Wilkes County, where North Wilkesboro Speedway is located, Allegheny County, where I was working at the time at the newspaper when we met, and Ash County up in the mountains of North Carolina. So she had a pretty large territory that she traveled to. In all the years that she was on the bench, she was opposed for her seat on the bench just once in an election, and that was 2008. And you told me about this before. Not very pleasant. Steve, I... I cannot begin to tell you how bad a year that was. And a good bit of what Jeannie faced that year was simply because she's a woman. I mean, I had my thyroid taken out that year. Jeannie's thyroid cancer came back. My dad died that year. But on top of everything and overshadowing everything that year was the election. The day that we came back from my dad's funeral, we were met on the road where we live by campaign signs for the guy who was running against her. And I will always believe that that was on purpose, that they knew about what was going on with my dad and they put up those signs anyway. And, you know, there's all kinds of stories about people taking down her signs and tearing up her signs. Listen, doing what my wife does, doing what my wife did before she retired, you know, you're going to make people upset. You're going to make people mad, but it's part of her job. And That's the politics. job that she was hired to do. That's correct. And politics can be a dirty game, Rick. Very dirty game. As we have seen so many times in this country. I saw how dirty it was on a local level. I mean, Jeannie's not a politician or anything, but I, I saw how dirty it was on a local level. I can't imagine what it would be even on a statewide or certainly a national level. I, I just cannot comprehend that kind of thing. And I, you know, I remember that was before social media was out a lot, but there were message boards that, that would, people would get on. And I read one of those message boards one night and I didn't sleep for two days. 
just because of how ugly people were being. Steve, this is the thing about Jean. She didn't get the job as judge simply because she's a woman. She got the job because she's good at what she does. And Jeannie has this ability to think on her feet that I simply do not possess. And this is my favorite Judge Jeannie story ever. She had this guy in court who kept wanting to mouth off. And of course, in a courtroom, that's just not appropriate. Well, he kept wanting to talk back to her and be ugly and argumentative and everything. So she told him, said, sir, if you don't be quiet, I'm going to lock you up. Well, this rocket scientist <laughs> her and called her, well, I'm just going to say it, called her a bitch in court. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, without blinking, my wife looks at him and goes, that's judge bitch to you. And that's 30 days in jail. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Judge Judy has nothing on judge. <laughs> well, then this guy doubled down and said, F you in court. <laughs> now there is a stupid man. <laughs> <laughs> to which my wife replied, motion denied. And that's 30 more days. <laughs> and Steve, I don't have that ability. I do not have that ability to come up with the exact right thing to say at the exact moment that I need to say it. If that had been me, I would have been driving down the road a couple of weeks later and said, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I should have said, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it means to be Jeannie Houston on the bench in a courtroom. I've heard that if you're hanging around that part of North Carolina, the last thing you want to do is transgress in any way because you do not want to face Judge Jeannie. <laughs> that's what I've heard. <laughs> Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports, so whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the October 10th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup scene covered that year's fall race weekend at Charlotte. Davey Allison pitted for a splash of gas on lap 317. That was 17 laps from the end of the race. The stop took less than four seconds, took 3.78 seconds to complete. And when Davey came back onto the track, he was 20.45 seconds behind Jeff Bodine, who was winding down his time at junior Johnson and associates crew chief, Tim Brewer and junior or junior and Tim, <laughs> whichever the case might've been, they decide that they're going to try to make it the rest of the way. Jeff starts easing up on the throttle, trying to save gas. 
Davy closes a little bit, but not nearly enough. And Jeff wins. And Jeff said in your race lead, the engine sputtered with two laps to go. And then when I took the white flag, it quit. When I got into the first corner, it picked up again. And then it ran pretty good down the back straightaway. Then when I got to the checkered flag, it ran out. I pushed the clutch in and it idled a little while. And I guess there was a little fuel left, but I coasted into victory lane. So, you know, you had Daryl Waltrip blowing his engine just as he crossed the finish line in the 1985 edition of the Weston. And you had Jeff Bodine running out of gas, completely running out of gas as he crossed under the checkered flag here at Charlotte. Uh, there's something, something to be said about the end of the race for junior Johnson and associates, huh? <laughs> Not the first time the eyebrows were raised when it came to a junior Johnson car. Now remember the other part of the story is this is the year that junior was busted for the illegal engine in the spring at Charlotte. And he wound up suspended for four races and he comes back in the fall at Charlotte to win. And I guess he was like, Hey, how do you like me now? <laughs> <laughs> what suspension? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say that that did not mean that there wasn't any controversy after this race. One of Davy Allison's crew members checked the reading on the gas pump. And before Jeff's car was refueled after the race, the pump reportedly read 87,176.6 gallons. After Jeff's car was refueled, it read 87,199.8 gallons. Uh oh. Now do that math. And that meant that 23.2 gallons went into the fuel cell that was only allowed to hold 22 gallons. Now here's the story. When the race was <laughs> over, for some reason, Junior's crewmen were lined up in front of the gas pumps so you could not read the amount of gas that was being put into the car. However, Larry McReynolds, who was the crew chief for Davy Allison at the time, poked through there and read what those numbers were. He wrote them down, and he said, I know what's going on. I'm the guy with the figures, and they were the figures you just said. So Larry said, there's no way that he could have finished the race if the tank had been legal. But NASCAR ruled otherwise. Well, there was an extensive teardown after that race. And NASCAR checked the fuel cell, fuel lines, the dry brake system, and nothing was found to be illegal. The lines taken from Jeff's car were all completely dry. And as for the discrepancy on the gas pump numbers, NASCAR said that the gauge was not calibrated. So take that for what it's worth. According to Dick Beatty in a scene on the circuit item in this issue, <laughs> he said, as far as he was concerned, everything was approved. So I don't know that, a gallon off. I think that's a little bit more than the discrepancy. I don't know. Well, here's the real deal. Uh, the press was ushered out of the inspection area at the pumps by NASCAR. Okay, now that was unusual in itself. And when the race was over, I don't know if it's Dick Beatty, but a NASCAR official was asked how much fuel was in the car. And the guy said that he forgot. 
but it was less than 22 gallons. Okay, now you got proof from Larry McReynolds, who wrote the figures down, that it was over 23 gallons, and NASCAR officials said they forgot, but it was less than 22 gallons. Now, what do you think is really going on here? I don't know, but I think maybe Junior might have gotten away with one there. Yeah. Jeff Bodine and Junior Johnson might have had their issues on the way to Victory Lane, but Mark Martin, he appeared to be headed to Victory Lane himself that day. He started from the pole and led 198 laps, but the engine in his Roush Racing Ford went kablooey on lap 212, and Jack appeared to be getting ready to have the crew try to repair the car, at least to diagnose what was going on. But Mark went up to him and kind of touched the sleeve of his shirt. And Mark told Jack, it's broken. I mean, it's blown up. I promise. And after that, they quit work and packed it up for the day. So after having such a strong day, Mark was credited with a 35th place finish. And when told that a rival crew chief had called him the class of the field that day, Mark said, oh, I don't know. That doesn't mean anything to me. I figure my chances are next to none. Something will surely mess this deal up. So <laughs> Mark was kind of expecting the shoe to drop, wasn't he? Well, yeah. And sometimes when a driver is running that well in a race, all he's thinking about is, okay, this is too good. What's going to happen? <laughs> well, Mark later added, I figure I've had a lot of disappointments in my career, and I'm not going to let this be one of the biggest. I was real leery of being in the dominant situation that we were. I'm not as heartbroken as I would have been normally because I never did let myself feel real good about it. I figured it was too good to be true. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Lap 234, Dave Marcus and Morgan Shepard got together in turn three to trigger an accident that also collected Ricky Rudd, Derek Cope, and Jimmy Hensley. And there were a little bit of fireworks afterward. Dave was still in his car when Morgan went over for a little chat. And there's a photo of Morgan in the photo spread in this issue. And let's just say that from the expression on his face, he doesn't look like he's on his way to a motor race and outreach chapel service. <laughs> <laughs> and Morgan said, I went over to his car and said, what in the world's wrong with you, Marcus? Why did you hit me? He started cussing or something or other. And he threw his hand at me and I grabbed his hand. I had a hold of his hand and he had a hold of mine and he started cussing me. One of the other guys pulled me away and that's all there was to it. Now, Dave, on the other hand, had a different version of what happened. <laughs> That's a surprise, <laughs> isn't it? He said that Morgan came over to his car and started pounding on him while he was still strapped in the car. And Dave said, I got hold of his shirt and drug him in the car. But then the safety crew drug him back out. I had him halfway in the car at one time. He's lucky I didn't get him in there. <laughs> <laughs> now that would have been a sight to behold. Oh. Dave said that he got into Morgan after Michael Waltrip hit him from behind to which Michael Waltrip replied, look at the front end of my car. I did not hit him. I don't know why he said that, but Dave is like that sometimes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. Dave Marcus, Morgan Shepard, who you have in that one? Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know, man. I believe it would have been a draw. Well, you might be right. <laughs> Dave said he had Morgan halfway pulled into the car. Uh, come on. <laughs> Steve, October the 1st, 1991, Richard Petty announced his retirement during a press conference in Level Cross. Richard said in your news story, since 1967, I've been hearing retirement rumors. I've been saying since then that when I decided what to do, I would gather all of you together and tell you exactly what I was going to do. First, I'm not retiring. Really, George Bush was supposed to be here today to announce my candidacy for the U.S. Senate, but he was busy. <laughs> Lee Iacocca of Chrysler was supposed to announce I was going to drive for him, but he hasn't decided what colors the cars are going to be. So we're just going to have to go on from there. I remember being at that press conference and I remember the emotions that it stirred for me. You had known Richard a lot longer and a lot better than I ever have. What was it like for you to be sitting in that press conference and hearing him confirm that 1992 was going to be his last year as a driver? We always knew that there would be a point when Richard Petty had to retire from racing. And we always knew he'd go out with class, which is what he did with having this press conference. He didn't shy away from anything. He gathered us all together, true to his word, and told us what he was going to do. I was not overly surprised, nor were many people at that press conference. You have to understand something. The Richard Petty of 1991 was not the Richard Petty of 1967 in more ways than one. I mean, the team had not won a race in nearly a decade. And there had been situations that weren't too smooth for Petty Enterprises. He actually left the team at one point. Kyle left the team, came back. Dale Enman left as crew chief. There were several things that went on that mounted up to a point where we sort of asked ourselves, not if he was going to retire, but when. He did not want to race the way he was racing. That was for sure. But again, he did what he said he was going to do, and everybody was appreciative of that. He did it with class. Steve, I believe that I've mentioned it here on the podcast before, but you know, I've got a son named Richard. I've also got a son named Adam, and that's not by accident. That's not by coincidence. I named my first son Richard after Richard Petty. So, of course, I have a great amount of respect for him. I always say that he's my favorite race car driver of all time. But the fact of the matter is I didn't get interested in the sport until 1989. I have never personally witnessed Richard Petty, get a top 10 finish, mm -hmm. much less a win. Mm -hmm. And so for the last, I don't know, three, four, five years of his career, he was basically out just making laps. And like you said, that was not the Richard Petty in 1967 and certainly the decade of the 1970s. No, it was not. It was clearly much different and it was clearly for him much less satisfying. It had to be. Now you couple that up with the time he spent in raising and naturally he reached the conclusion that it was time to bring it to an end. Kyle Petty said in Deb's sidebar on this event, it's hard to separate where Winston Cup and NASCAR starts and stops and where Richard Petty starts and stops. They're inseparable. 
when he does finally get out of the car and he doesn't drive anymore, that's a part of Richard Petty that you guys aren't going to see anymore. A part of Richard Petty that you know, and I know, and my sisters know, and we all know and love will be put on a shelf somewhere. That will be a sad day. No matter how you look at it, that will be a sad day. You mentioned the fact that you didn't remember me being there, (laughs) (laughs) but that day, and I don't remember if it was before or after, I'm pretty sure it was afterwards, but I stopped at a gas station there in level cross to put $5 worth of gas in my car. And that was Bertha, a 1976 Chrysler Cordoba that was snot green and rust had no hubcaps. It was faded out. It was a clunker of a car. And then you and Deb rolled up in a same company car. And Steve, I got to be honest with you, man. I was so embarrassed for the two of you to see me in that car. And I think I said something to the effect of that was the Dixie racing news company car, (laughs) but yeah, I will never forget you two rolling up in the same company car and me being in that car in particular. And I will never forget. You correct me if I'm mistaken on this door, but I will never forget when you finally did join us and you got a company car to use. Now, if I can recall the story correctly, you drove that car and your son saw it. Yep. And he was just so proud of you. Look at daddy's car, he said. (laughs) Far cry from a Chrysler Cordoba. (laughs) Well, when Richard would come spend the summers with us from Nashville, Jeannie and he would always go to the race with me in Myrtle Beach. And of course, I would be in the company car. And at the time, the NASCAR cafe was still a thing. And there was a NASCAR cafe there in Myrtle Beach. And when we would roll into the parking lot in the Winston cup scene company car, the people at the NASCAR cafe, they paid attention to that car. I bet. (laughs) And and so Richard would always say, can we do another lap? (laughs) (laughs) Can, Can we do another lap before we go in? So people can see our car. (laughs) So that was awesome. I'll always remember that, but Then in the Bush series race, gas mileage was a theme this weekend. Warburton tried to stretch his fuel mileage during the Bush series event by going from the halfway break at lap 101, the rest of the way in the 200 lap event without stopping. And he made it to lap 189 before running out of gas, which handed the win over to Harry Gant, who was coming off that four race win streak in Winston cup competition. That was one part of the story in the Bush series race that day, but also Dell Earnhardt was parked early in the race. Bill Parsons spun in turn four and that triggered a six car accident and Bush series director, Robert Black determined that Dale had gotten into field and he sent him to the garage for the rest of the race. Now that is something you didn't see very often. So it had to be very obvious to Robert Black that something was a foul. Uh, I don't know because replays were kind of inconclusive. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I tell you what, that does seem to be a case of tugging on Superman's cape. <laughs> <laughs> Dale said 
Phil Parsons spun out in front of me and I tried to dodge him, but I hit him with the front end. NASCAR said I spun him out. When they want you out of the race, they want you <laughs> out of the race. To which Robert Black responded, if you're called down for rough driving, you are through for the day. That's the rule we go by. Each week, we tell everyone that in the driver's meeting, just to make absolutely sure everyone understands. That incident with Phil Parsons was rough driving and was totally unnecessary, so we followed our rule. So that's the way it was. I mean, no matter how inconclusive the videos might have been, it was Robert Black's call, and that's the call he made. And if you're going to play in NASCAR's playground, you have to follow their rules, period. Steve, I love a good conspiracy, all right? <laughs> so I wonder if maybe Dale didn't go to Robert before that race and say, you know what? I got, a, I got some fishing I need to do. I got some hunting I need to do. <laughs> I can't be sticking around this bush series race. So if maybe something happens early on, why don't you just park me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said it and I ain't taking it back neither. <laughs> well, well, Rick. To be honest, there are always possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Dale Earnhardt, Kirk Shelmerdine won the sportsman race that week, and he was still serving as Dale Earnhardt's crew chief. And this was the year before he announced plans to step down as Dale's crew chief in order to pursue a driving career. Now, it was this sportsman race, the same sportsman circuit that Humpy Wheeler basically created to let lower level guys and guys with not a lot of money, but a lot of, uh, interest in racing compete. Is that yeah. the circuit? Same yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it didn't last very long, sadly. No, it did not. Hi, this is NASCAR driver, Kevin LePage, and you're listening to the scene vault podcast. Steve, I don't want to be ironic or anything. Don't want to be ugly, but just as a reminder, this podcast is not associated in any way with American city business journals, the owners of the same brand, Steve, you and I are just a couple of working staffs who once held jobs there. Rick, I held a job there for a very long time and those were very good years. So I will say I have much respect for American city business journal. And Steve that week and steve this issue also covered an announcement in level north and steve this feature 